Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, economic recovery, one of the biggest concerns post-pandemic here in Hamilton. The mayor wants to set up a task force to plan a strategy. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is going to join us to talk about that. School closures extended to the end of May now. Chairman of the Board Alex Johnstone from the Hamilton Board of Education will explain the ramifications to us. And if the pandemic continues through the year, is the country prepared for the possibility of a pandemic influenza and COVID at the same time? Professor Allison Thompson from U of T joins us. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council will meet uh, later this week on Wednesday, as per usual. They'll be done, of course, virtually as opposed to actually meeting at City Hall. Uh, there will be a motion put forward that uh, for uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to set up a task force to talk about Hamilton's recovery and just how that may shape up and looking for public input into that. To get some details on this, we are pleased to welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to the Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML. Mr. Mayor, good morning. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, great to have you here. Uh, we're talking in a more positive tone. Everybody seems to be uh, the, the prime minister over the weekend, uh, the premier today, uh, other uh, leaders talking about coming out of this. And uh, I think maybe the, the best phrase to use as we start looking ahead and trying to plan this, Mr. Mayor, is guarded optimism. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Cautiously optimistic that we're, you know, there's a, that there's a, uh, some sort of, some semblance of normalcy to come, uh, you know, down the road. We have to have some hope. And I think the, uh, the key indicators, uh, from public health for Hamilton were, uh, particularly good over the weekend. So we're, we're seeing less cases and, uh, and less deaths than uh, many other municipalities, fortunately. And so the, the rationale around having a look at, uh, and planning forward on, you know, what does it look like uh, when we start to relax things is going to be very important. Uh, but, I, but I, you know, I guess, I guess the cautious, cautious optimism is it's not uh, business as usual. It's definitely going to be a different uh, normal, but it's, it's going to certainly lighten things up for people. And I, I would expect that uh, new places like recreational spaces will, you know, if they can get the proper protections in place, can start to relax a little bit. I see that uh, the community gardens uh, was approved by the province to open up uh, for food provision here. And I guess uh, we were asking people to hang on there so that we get all the proper protections in place before we start uh, digging in the ground and uh, maybe getting too close. So a lot of things have to happen to make it go. But we need uh, we need a sense that as the weather improves, as the virus, uh, we get a better handle on it. Uh, how do we step forward to uh, to get a bit more normalcy happening in our lives? And that includes... You know, the, the businesses that are out there that uh, this motion that you mentioned uh, talks about is how do we come together and look at, uh, you know, what can we uh, you know, help enhance, protect, uh, kind of make universal the, the kind of protections that are going to be necessary to open up more businesses in our community. This has got to be done very carefully. You and I talked about this when some of these uh, restrictions were imposed. It seems like forever ago now. Uh, but I think I mentioned at the time, no matter what happens here, you as an elected official, because I know you're hearing this right now, of course, you know, as you impose these things, it's too drastic. And in hindsight, everybody's going to say, well, they didn't do enough. So, but, you know, it is what it is. And you're just going to have to, I, you guys know that you've all got thick skins and you can live with the criticism on this. But there is going to be a, a lot of pressure, I would think, Mr. Mayor, to look at the yep. commercial side of this. And, and that seems to be the controversial thing that we're hearing from some of the United States jurisdictions that have opened up is can you practice physical distancing and still have a business that's open how do you tackle something like that yeah and i think that i, I don't think anybody has the the, the the right answer on that i think it's it's a matter of following our public health advice and 
you know, spatial separation or, or physical distance still is going to be important. Obviously, uh, masks and gloves are going to be important uh, going forward. You know, as long as that virus is out there, um, you know, you never where you don't know where it's going to land. So everyone has to kind of practice all the protections we have in place now. But it may not be the kind of uh, dedicated self isolation that we're looking at at the moment. And so uh, I don't I don't know that anybody has a magic bullet answer. I, I'm looking forward to hearing what the uh, the premier has to say later, and based on the advice of their public health and what areas we can relax uh, or they plan on relaxing and when they plan to start that and. I think they might be laying out a roadmap, but not necessarily saying it's starting tomorrow. Uh, so, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see what they come up with. For, from our, for our part, uh, you know, look, I mean, I know that, uh, you know, invariably we, we do much better when we collaborate. And so, you know, we have major employers in the, in the city of Hamilton. All of them have been impacted one way or the other, whether they're small to medium-sized businesses or whether they're major institutions like MAC or Mohawk or our healthcare sector. So bringing all all the all the the leads from those organizations together to talk about common issues and common practices that we can employ to help one another is going to going to be very important, and that, in my view, will help uh, you know inspire a, a more seamless uh, 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 coordinated process uh, as opposed to everybody doing their own thing in their own way. So the whole idea is. Let's collaborate. Uh, we just finished, actually, a survey of some 700 uh, businesses in our community that responded to the survey, telling us about what their impacts uh, have been, uh, what they expect to happen in the future, uh, you know, how they could uh, how they could survive going forward. That survey is going to inform a lot of uh, the, the work that this task force will do. So I anticipate that both on the small business and and private business and and cultural side, which is a very important part of our uh, economic. Um, you know, existence, you know, the music, uh, the film industry, uh, all the cultural stuff, the artists, all that cultural work is a major part of our economics. So when you put all of that together, we need input from all of those sectors so that we can have a, a coordinated and collaborated response to whatever the premier comes up with today in terms of opening things up. Well, and I guess we're not quite sure how that's going to roll out today. But we're being told from our friends at Queen's Park that uh, the Premier is going to be rather, same as you, cautiously optimistic and move rather slowly on this and, and a phased-in mm-hmm. approach. But maybe one bellwether that we might want to take a lesson from, Mr. Mayor, is the announcement they made over the weekend that the uh, suspended school year is going to continue at least till the end of uh, May uh, and maybe beyond. We don't know at this stage. But that seems to indicate that the province is still not comfortable with large groups, in that case kids, getting together. And and that may be uh, part of the, the pattern that the mayor be talking, or the premier could be talking about later on. I, I would assume it's going to factor into your discussions as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, if the, if the medical officers of health come together and say, okay, now, you know, we, we, we've been, you know, groups of less than five, maybe now we can, uh, you know, start to move those numbers up again and allow for, you know, larger gatherings, depending on, uh, you know, who they're associated with, or maybe, you know, families that have now been isolating for, uh, for you know, weeks on end could, uh, could come together as opposed to, uh, you know, having to stay apart. I mean, there's a whole bunch of variations that could happen, but uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where they go. Knowing that, uh, you know, schools, I mean, I, I, I have to think that the school year in terms of uh, in-class, in-school you know, uh, is probably uh, pooched. I mean, it, uh, it, it'd be hard to imagine that they stay closed until the 31st of May and then bring them in for June uh, just for that one month and then send them all back home again for the summer. Doesn't, doesn't make, probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but yeah. uh, I guess they're not ready to announce that yet. 
but uh, you know the indicator of having kids from various different families coming together and then going back home again uh, is particularly complicated. Then you have no control over you know how groups and gatherings actually happen, and I think that's going to be a fundamental part of any announcement is uh, some measure of control of who's getting together and where and uh, what kind of protections they have in place when they do it. All right, and uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're going to be looking for, this motion that you're going to put forward on Wednesday in the task force. Uh, we had discussions with Norm Schlehan, of course, who heads your economic development department, about the survey, and I'm glad to hear so many people responded to it. That's going to give you a pretty good indicator as to where businesses are and what they'd like Very to helpful. see happening. Uh, but, but it's not just business you're reaching out to. Who, who do you want to see on this task force? Uh, you know, it's business uh, and, and major employers, and so all the sectors in our community. So, you know, we're looking at uh, McMaster and Mohawk, clearly, uh, the health sciences sector, uh, the cultural sector, the film industry, big big industry in film, the music industry, uh, obviously small to medium-sized business, and, uh, you know, our local BIAs, uh, you know, they have a BIA association. I imagine we'll get representation from them. I mean, all of those sectors uh, have leads and uh, and leadership. And uh, they uh, they can come together. It, it's it's really about employment. So economic recovery means uh, how do we get people back to work? <laughs> it's not just about small business. It's about small and large business. It's about private business. Uh, the the only area that we're not covering here is uh, is uh, not for profits. I think that's going to have a separate table associated with that because it's a, a bit of a specific area that uh, goes a little bit beyond kind of private sector uh, innovation, entrepreneurship, and uh, and industry. Uh, but it's an industry unto itself, and I think there's a whole new, uh, you know, area that has to be, uh, you know, looked into as well. But beyond that, I would say all of the sectors that I've mentioned, uh, all the leads from those sectors, but we'd want to participate. Obviously, we have uh, major steelmakers here that are also in various states of flux as a result of how they can continue to operate. And so, uh, I mean, you bring all of that together, you've got a pretty, a pretty solid group of people that have broad representation of our economy. And then, uh, you know, certainly can provide us some input on how that economy economy can uh, can thrive more successfully given the given the strengths that we're going to be in. So I don't want people to be clear on this. I mean, you're not just going to open the floodgates. I don't think the premier is going to announce no. that today. Certainly, either. No, no. Uh, because no, no. the reality we need to face here, and I know you've, you're in constant contact with uh, Dr. Richardson, the medical officer of health. The virus is right. still here. I mean, one of the provisos they set up a long time ago when they first of all talked about some of these restrictions was if we have 14 days without any new cases, well, that's a pretty good indicator that we're flattening. Well, we, we haven't done that yet. I think we had four or five days with no new cases, and then with, there was some on the weekend. I mean, it's it's still not peaking, but it's not we're not where we want to be at this stage. So there's got to be a little trepidation, I would think, Mr. Mayor, to move forward on this because you don't know if it's going to cause another kick. It is, uh, it is it is nervous moments, but, uh, you know, nervous, we have to get past some of that nervousness, but at the same time be extremely cautious and, and be ready to react. And so one of the hallmarks that I see, uh, you know, advocated for is that if you don't have uh, rigorous testing in place uh, and if you don't have rig- rigorous isolation in place and, and treatment in place uh, so that you can respond quickly to cases that do happen and they're likely going to happen, uh, if you don't have that ability to respond properly, quickly with the uh, treatment and isolation, then uh, the spread of the virus will start, will start all over again, and we're right back into uh, right back into isolation. So uh, there's got to be a you know a number of things put in place and, and rigorous rigorous discipline that's associated with them, or else uh, we're 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 setting ourselves up for you know even a more serious case of spread because now uh, the moment we open things up and people are more integrating and connecting with one another uh, more aggressively. 
that uh, that is an opportunity to uh, to allow for additional spread. So I say uh, I'm as cautiously optimistic as the premier is, but but uh, I, I want to indicate that this is not going to be business as usual. This is not going to be uh, for quite some time, and I, you know it, it, we may mark that in years. That until such time as this vaccine has been developed and 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 created and distributed globally, before we can start looking at normality the way we had it, uh, you know, three or four months ago, and so people need to adjust to the notion that there are going to be, you know, cautious uh, you know, uh, protections put in place. We may be masking ourselves more more often. Uh, well, that that seems to be one of the things that they to. keep talking about, isn't it, Mr. Mayor? And when we look yep. at some of the U.S. businesses that some of them opened as late as, as last week. Uh, uh, for instance, some of the personal service things like hair salons and, and nail places and things like that, uh, they they take your temperature before. You, so the, you know these store owners are going to have to uh, there's going to have to purchase equipment. I would think, uh, take the temperature of the client uh, and of course of the staff and, and monitor that on a consistent basis. Uh, I'm guessing what we saw in New York City is what we're going to see in Ontario as well, where face masks are, if not mandatory, going to be heavily encouraged no matter where you go these days. I think we're going to see a lot of face masks and gloves for like you say months to come yeah i think so and and uh, and the question is uh you know appropriate supply so we're already yeah. having those issues uh, for the healthcare frontline healthcare workers and so if everyone needs to be wearing a you know a, a recommended mask and you know the, you know it's a lot of it a lot of recommendations are wrapping around we'll just get a scarf or you know some sort of protection maybe that's the way to go but obviously personal protective equipment if we're all going to be needing that especially in business uh, what's that supply chain look like, and is it is it generally available? That'll be another key factor in terms of how we lighten things up. So uh, right now we know that there's a struggle of getting personal protective equipment in our long-term care facilities, uh, already in our hospitals, everybody that needs it now. We're, we're, we're gathering it up from all the people that don't need it right now that aren't operating and giving it to the healthcare sector. But all of those businesses, if they're going to be needing all that equipment, uh, also need to get supplied. So is that supply level up high enough? To be able to accommodate that uh, that's another question that has to be answered well and as we talked about with the folks at st joe's and i'm sure hamilton health sciences are going to mirror this as well uh you as, as a as a political entity may, may be moving forward and thinking okay we not have to start creeping forward uh they're kind of hanging back i mean they're still leaving, still excuse me still leaving beds open just in case uh, there is a spike and things of this nature. So they're, yep. they're not taking their foot off the gas yet, uh, which I think has got to be comforting to people thinking, okay, what if? Uh, well, it's good to know that they've learned from this. And, and so we're, as a community, trying to be ready just in case. Well, you know, the lesson learned here, uh, you know, and that needs to stay permanent is, uh, you know, these kind of viruses can now occur on a more regular basis because they're mutating. And uh, we need to we need to have a healthcare system that is not just working at the margins that is prepared for these kind of bigger, more dramatic breakouts. Minimal employment levels uh, in our healthcare system has been the order of the day for decades to try and manage the cost of healthcare. Well, we know now that minimal staffing and minimal uh, uh, bricks and mortar doesn't uh, doesn't allow for the kind of dramatic changes that are happening right now, and and that applies into long-term care facilities as well. You know, far too many of them have. Uh, Minimal staff on 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 duty to you know save money obviously, uh, and provide uh, you know you know service, but but maybe not the kind of level of service that's going to be required into the future. So a lot of these organizations are going to have to rethink their their business models. 
and come up with uh, enough room in their uh, in their facilities and enough staffing in their facilities to be able to deal with the kinds of uh, outbreaks that we're seeing here now and into the future. Because this virus is still going to be here, and so we're going to continue to have long-term care home facilities. We we want them all to be success, successful. Uh, I would say the uh, on the private sector side, they've had a lot more challenges in terms of being successful, maybe not the right practices in place. They're all going to have to step up into a whole different uh, you know operating paradigm. And uh, I would say that's a good thing, uh, but it has to be maintained not just uh, for the next few months, but for, for, for the future. Absolutely. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mr. Mayor, we'll stay in touch through the week as uh, this rolls out and uh, see how council responds to this. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again in a few days. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One announcement yesterday that probably didn't surprise too many people, but is going to have an impression uh, and and uh, some concerns, I guess, with an awful lot of families who have kids in school is from Education Minister Stephen Lecce, who said this yesterday. So the government, on the advice of the Chief Medical Officer of Health, uh, following discussions, consecutive discussions with Dr. Williams and the command table, the government has uh, decided and is announcing to extend the school closure period till May 29th. So, what are the implications? What's going to happen to the school year? What about graduations? I know people have got questions about this. So we're pleased to welcome Alex Johnstone back to the program. Alex, of course, is a trustee and chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. Uh, Alex, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well these days. Good morning, Bill. Notwithstanding the pressures of, uh, of being the chair at a school board at a time like this, but uh, these are difficult times. I, I don't guess you were very uh, shocked by the announcement yesterday, because I, 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 you guys have been planning for this eventuality or this possibility anyway for some time. This certainly was not a surprise. Uh, we've been watching closely other school districts across Canada and around the world, and it tends to be the case that um, to this point, almost all schools are returning in the fall uh, for those districts that have announced a reopening. Um, but even then, full plans are not in place for those districts that are reopening. Um, so, for example, some uh, some districts are looking at a staggered start, um, but the final plans have not been communicated. Uh, what the minister did say yesterday afternoon was that um, that his next announcement would be his final announcement with regards to when a, a firm date would be provided to Ontarians of when students would be returning back to school. Yeah, I'm guessing. I'm, I'm not a gambling guy, Alex, but I'm guessing it's probably going to be the day after Labor Day. Uh, but maybe not even then. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen between now and then. So everything's pretty much up in the air, I would think. It certainly is. And, you know, the province is working closely with Ontario's chief medical officer. And locally, of course, uh, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board is working closely with Hamilton Public Health. So, and again, we'll take the direction. Uh, as you mentioned, Mr. Leshe mentioned yesterday that he'll make one more announcement, which we all assume is going to be, well, that's it for the school year. You know, the, uh, the virtual learning you're doing is going to be it, and we'll make those determinations. So let's work on that premise, if we could, Alex. How does this roll out for students that are looking to complete their school year and move on? So right now, we are, uh, we have uh, multiple plans in place. So we are planning for both the scenario where students do return and they do not return. In the event that students do not return, um, uh, we are at this point looking at um, uh, there being final tasks rather than exams for our secondary students. Those tasks would meet curriculum expectations and currently our teachers and uh, our principals and office administrators are 
um, uh, brainstorming what uh, what this would look like and how it would be facilitated. Uh, we are also uh, looking very closely at what um, uh, asking, starting to ask questions around what would need to be in place uh, for that time when we do reopen. Um, so some of the major questions that, that we were left with were things around um, uh, health and safety, uh, would personal protective equipment be required? What is the design and layout uh, for the schools that would be uh, required to ensure health and safety? And um, what kind of measures would be uh, required to be introduced in order to ensure uh, health and safety in the event that uh, positive cases identified in one of our schools? So from a very um, high level uh, we're beginning those plans of what uh, a return might look like, what that new reality might look like. And then we're also having the discussions around uh, the very immediate future. Um, we had to announce a very disappointing news this past week that our uh, graduation and prom ceremonies would be canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, um, we recognize how significant all of these uh, important milestones are for our students and for their families. With that, we are looking at having graduations bumped into the fall once it is safe to hold such ceremonies. And uh, I know when I was going to high school and many individuals across the city would remember having um, our grad ceremonies in the fall, the Friday yeah. before oh, yeah. Thanksgiving. Yeah, that, that that used to be the norm, and I, I I guess you'd know better than I when they actually moved it to the just at the end of the school year. But it's I understand it's going to be disappointing. Uh, mind you, if you watched uh, the show last night, uh, together they're stronger together. You, you saw the Arkells, uh, Max and uh, Mike actually gave somebody their graduation, which was kind of cool. But we'll talk about that later on the show. But it is it is going to be somewhat problematic. But t- let's talk about those students who will be graduating, moving hopefully on to post-secondary education uh, when the school year finally does come back, Alex. How do you determine final marks? Because those are going to be key about acceptance into some of these facilities. So um, we did receive clarification. All boards received clarification last week from the ministry that the mark that a student had on March 13th is their base mark. They cannot go lower than that base mark as of March 13th. However, they can go higher. So if they were to submit uh, work that uh, increased their mark, their mark could go up. Uh, With that, um, the minister is working closely with colleges, universities, apprenticeship programs to ensure that our students can still transition on to um, their uh, future destinations, uh, whether that be college, university, apprenticeship, or workplace. Um, that said, we are recognizing that it's going to be a very difficult transition. And uh, when we um, plan to open in the new year uh, or in the new school year, it will certainly be a slower start as we work to ensure that all of our students are, are brought up to um, uh, get caught up. Well, yeah, having some discussions with some of the neighbors a, a few days ago about this, and they both have a, a couple of kids that uh, are moving on to post-secondary uh, sometime in September, I guess, when things go back to normal. And they were concerned about being put at a disadvantage because of this. But I, I said, not really. Everybody's in the same boat, really, aren't they? Just to, not just here in Ontario, but just about every other board are going through very similar situations. And and post-secondary educations, as you say, are not only aware of it; they're working with you to ensure that there is going to be a smoother transition that might ordinarily have happened. 
And I'm, um, I, mean, I don't want to speak for colleges and universities, but I am hearing that surveys are being sent out to um, potential um, um, students who, who would be looking to register in colleges and universities and asking if they would consider different formats such as online or, or blended learning. I think here locally, um, we, we do um, believe that our, our students will continue to have these same opportunities, as you said, Everyone's in the same boat. We are all going through this around globally together. And uh, with that, that means there's going to be exceptions uh, come the fall, that there is going to be um, uh, that uh, when we are able to regather, when it is safe for us all to come back together again and commence, recommence school, that it will be a slower start because we will be looking to get all back onto the same page. Well, basically, because I would think uh, everything's going to be on the table. One of them, again, to go back to the parents I was talking to, was sarcastically saying, I, class size is probably going to be back on the table. And I said, sure it will. If, if there's still going to be physical distancing, and we anticipate that's going to be with us for some time, uh, you're not going to be able to have classrooms with 25 or 30 students in them. So that's, that's going to put a, a huge amount of pressure on boards of education. I think, you know, at this point, we are listening closely to uh, the recommendations that are coming through from the chief medical officer, as well as working closely with public health. Locally, those are questions that uh, that we're going to be raising. Uh, what is our uh, top priority is safety. And uh, very close second is, of course, how we, uh, if not uh, equally so, uh, how we how we work to ensure that our students are are caught up and uh, that they get the education that they deserve. And that's going to be a situation and a determination that really the, the ministry is going to have to make. I would think about about how this is going to roll out, whether it's going to be in June, which I highly anticipate is not going to happen. Uh, or if it's going to be in September, just what students and what the classroom is going to look like, probably going to be different. But, I mean, those are discussions uh, you and the ministry, I guess, are going to have to have over the, uh, the, the summer break. Absolutely. And part of that, too, uh, the minister did allude to ha- extending summer school. Um, so, uh, while mo- I guess, for the majority of our, our summer school programs, we have previously offered them in a blending, uh, blended learning style model uh, that were both in-class as well as online components. Um, what that what summer school will look like will depend on the direction of the ministry and, of course, the chief medical officer, whether they are in class or whether it is uh, entirely online. If the programming is online, um, our, we already have almost all of our courses. Uh, we offer online um, models, so we would be able to uh, simply pick those up and um, uh, and put those into, I guess, offer those online. However, uh, at the elementary level, we do have many questions around what summer school would look like. We have many programs such as um, Power uh, Camp Power, which is a focus on literacy. We also have uh, uh, math literacy programs throughout the summer. And at this point, we we would be looking towards the ministry on direction of how those programs would be offered if they are not offered in person. Well, to that end, maybe you could just take a couple of minutes here, Alex, and explain how the students, as they're doing these online courses, are, are able to resource uh, extra help. Because as we talked about way back when the debate about online courses was going on, uh, some some students are going to have no problem at all and a great comfort level with online stuff. Others are going to have some difficulty for a variety of reasons. Are those resources available to those students even now? 
Well, I want to first start by recognizing that this has been an enormous challenge. Um, sure. And our board was much better positioned than most boards across the province. We were already providing our secondary students with one-to-one devices. Every high school student was already provisioned uh, with an iPad. And uh, we had many te- uh, devices within our schools as we already had class kits for grades uh, 6, 7, and 8. So that meant that we were already had the resources on hand and we could start deploying them. Um, That said, uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've deployed over 7,000 devices, uh, including 1,000 that had data or internet embedded within them for those students who did not have access to data. It's been an enormous undertaking and there's huge inequalities across the province. Um, With that, if there's any parents out there who um, or student uh, who still does not have a device, please connect directly with your principal or with your teacher. Um, if the family is struggling to cope with um, only having one device in the household and um, they're not able to, uh, I guess, manage with, uh, I guess, one device where they previously had, again, connect with your school, let them know the challenges, and we will do our best to uh, provision you with a device and, and help you through this time. Yeah, we had a discussion with uh, Manny Figueroa, of course, your director of education, about that. And uh, I know that uh, the, your board and, and, of course, the, the, the management, the administrators, were trying to find some corporate support, for it, which I think is a great program, by the way, that you've just uh, described. And it's a, it's a great way for students to stay in touch. But not everybody has access to these sorts of things. And I guess you had varying levels of uh, cooperation from different uh, organizations out in the corporate world these days. Because I guess there's got to be pressure on a lot of them, Apple and others, uh, to try to come up with these accommodations. I'm hoping, though, that, uh, that that's going to happen uh, and will continue to happen over the next few months. Because this is, like, uh, there's a phrase that we're using so much these days, Alex, the new normal. But uh, I'm not so sure it's normal necessarily. But it, it is an accommodation that we're going to have to make for I would think sometime anyway. It's been a huge adjustment uh, for for many, um, if not all of our families. It's uh, when you have uh, parents who are trying to balance working at home um, in in addition to supporting students. uh, We're constantly looking for feedback from parents, from students on how we can provide better support um, and how to identify what the challenges are. The other week, we sent home uh, a tip sheet uh, with regards to how to support your your student by creating uh, better learning environments that they might be more conducive to them, um, how to uh, support parents and and scheduling uh, uh, the students' time throughout the day. Uh, we recognize that, that students are staying up later. Our teachers are getting emails at 1 in the morning. <laughs> and, um, oh, they're not uh, starting they're, that now, are they? <laughs> So and they're sleeping in late. Um, so uh, with that, it's uh, ensuring that uh, students do have um, access to the learning resources throughout the day. Uh, family schedules have changed, and uh, with that, there's also a lot of mental health uh, challenges that are taking place. And uh, for any for any student uh, that's out there, a parent that has a, a child that is struggling with mental health, uh, know that you can connect with the school board can also connect with uh, the Children's Help Phone, Kids Help Phone, uh, which is a free resource. Our school board has donated to it um, just because it's, uh, at this time, it's 
um, there's a huge mental health challenges when you are stuck inside or um, you're not able to, you're, you're socially distancing and you're not able to connect. Well, and we've heard those and talked about those on our program over the last little while, and I saw you're certainly aware of them too, Alex. Uh, this, this self-isolation, I mean, you know, there's there's a long list of things that can happen at, at the more that you're just stuck behind four walls like this, and boredom is down near the bottom of the list. There's a lot of other things that could have much more impact on family life, and if those are impacting the family, uh, that puts a huge strain on, on, as you say, mental health resources, but those resources are still available, and people need to know that. We even saw the Prime Minister when he started rolling out the, all these assistance packages, uh, one of the first ones they talked about, of course, was a huge amount of money for kids' help phone uh, right around the co- across the country because it's very necessary. So the students need to know that and the families need to know that, that even though the doors may be closed, the, the, the resources that you offer students are still going to be there. And that, that's exactly it. I think that, um, you know, if you um, reach out to each other uh, and, and keep checking in, if you're struggling or a family uh, to complete the coursework to... Um, I guess support your child if your child uh, is experiencing mental health challenges uh, or you're not sure, connect with the school. We're here to help. We want to help and uh, we want to put you in uh, contact with the right resources um, so that you can get the support that you need. This is a challenging time and the only way we're going to get through this is if we, if, is if we support each other together. Alex, uh, difficult times for everybody involved, and as I say, it's very difficult because this is such a moving target for you, and then oftentimes uh, you've been a very proactive and forward-thinking board, but you're kind of being reactive in this stage, waiting for what the ministry is going to be saying over the next couple of days. Uh, continue with the great work that you and your staff are doing on this, and uh, we uh, wish the best for everybody involved in this. We'll stay in touch. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Alex Johnson, of course, chairman of the board for the Hamilton Board of Education. And and just that's the takeaway from that discussion, among many other things. First of all, I don't think the school year is going to happen. You know, what it, it is what it is. Probably going to be after Labor Day before the students get back into a classroom situation. But if you have concerns, the, the board is still there. As, as Alex told us and Manny Figueroa uh, told us the other day when he was on the program, uh, Catholic board, public board, doesn't much matter. They are still there to answer questions and, and offer assistance if you guys out there need it for anything at all like that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Are we prepared for the pairing of a COVID-19 pandemic, perhaps another spike, and, of course, the flu season, which could be coming? I know Dr. Fauci down in Washington talked about this a couple of days ago, and it got people buzzing and say, what is, if that happens, how's this going to impact us? Well, to talk about the infectious diseases and the pairing of flu and COVID-19, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program Allison Thompson, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences, a Professor of Public Health Services, and uh, at the Dalai Lana School of Public Health, of course, at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us again today. Pleasure. An awful lot going on, an awful lot of speculation about what's happening here. And I know when Dr. Fauci mentioned this possibility, not a probability, but a possibility of a second wave, uh, and at the same time the flu season was coming upon us. So some people are looking at this as, as Armageddon. Uh, I, I'm not so sure how to respond to these things anymore because we're, we're just so, you know, up on our knees, I guess, in misinformation and speculation at this stage. Is that a possibility that, that we could have, as some people call, this, this double-edged sword that could be coming at us in the fall? I think it's uh, actually, you know, entirely possible that we'll be facing a situation going into the fall where we see the influenza influenza season starts up and we haven't really got this current outbreak beat yet. So 
I think we need to start thinking about how we're going to manage with uh, both of those things going on at the same time. Just to clarify, because I think some people conflate the two of these, did at the beginning and probably still do, are we talking about two different uh, viruses and two different uh, ways that they present themselves? Yeah, these are two very different viruses. They are both respiratory uh, viruses, but they are not from the same family, and they they um, are are quite different in terms of uh, what we know about them. Is the, is the flu bug, that, as we call it, a coronavirus? No, it is not okay. a coronavirus. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so it, different different, different beast altogether. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, but the symptoms, though, as as I been told the professor the symptoms may actually present very similar yeah they're both uh you know they both present with fever and upper respiratory tract uh infection and so uh without testing it would be very difficult to tell the difference you've heard the discussions uh, we just mentioned the premier is going to be making his address uh, later on today the prime minister in about an hour and, and the, the tone of the discussions these days has been, okay, how are we going to get out of this? Let's bring businesses back together. Let's ease the restrictions just a little bit. Now, I, I don't want to drag you into the political end of things, but from, from your standpoint, from the infectious disease standpoint, are, are we getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here by, by having these discussions? Well, I think we need to be having these discussions because it's pretty clear that, um, you know, we, the economy is not going to survive if we, if we keep doing what Mm -hmm. we're doing right now. And we, we need to think very creatively about how um, we're going to live with these viruses circulating in the community. Um, And, you know, so I think we need to be having these conversations about what to do and do that early. But I, I think that in terms of um, what the cost will be, if we, um open back up too quickly uh, i think we could see some short-term economic gain but in the long run i think it, it would actually be pretty devastating for the economy well because i i'm still hearing that there are an awful lot of questions out there that have yet to be resolved uh there seems to be an assumption professor that for instance uh when they do develop a vaccine that well that's the end of that and you know we don't need to worry about covid you get vaccinated and you'll be fine uh, and I'm not so sure if that's even an absolute, but then I'm starting to hear that, look, there's no guarantee they may actually even get a vaccine. Uh, and if they do, it may still be a year and a half to two years away. What's your read on that? I think that, you know, putting all our eggs in one basket and, and praying for an effective and safe vaccine um, is probably not the wisest strategy. It's um, been a bit of a, a lifeboat, I think, that people are clinging mm-hmm. to, but I think we need to be realistic about the fact that we are pretty bad at making effective uh, um, vaccines for respiratory illnesses, and you see that with the influenza vaccine. So, you know, it's it's often a mismatch, and it's not always 100% effective. So um, we have some years where, where it's actually uh, probably better to wear a mask than to get the vaccine. So we're not great at making these vaccines yet. Uh, we can hope that with the monumental scientific effort that's going on, we will actually overcome some of those barriers scientifically. But we need to think about alternatives to uh, an immunization strategy uh, about how to get life back on track. I want to talk about some of those strategies because some of them are being employed right now. But is there a concern also that as they're moving towards this, and the vaccine I'm talking about now, uh, 
and, and there's great research going on all over, all over the world, really, a lot of it here in Canada, and, and they're hoping that they can get something done sooner than later in this, and I still think that may be a little unrealistic. But you mentioned it before, though, that these viruses, and especially COVID-19, uh, can, can at the same time morph into something else. I mean, by the time they get a vaccine, could this be a different kind of virus? I mean, that's absolutely possible. We we just don't know at this point enough about this particular virus to know, um, you know, how quickly it might mutate. And, um, you know, I don't think it's in anything like influenza in that way. I mean, the, the thing with influenza is we the only thing we know about it is that it will change. So it's very hard to predict how that will look. And they're actually called sloppy and promiscuous viruses because they change <laughs> so rapidly. So it doesn't seem to be like an influenza virus that way. And, and so we can hope that that won't occur. But I think that is something people are keeping a really close eye on is, is you know, is there a potential for us to put all this effort into getting a vaccine and then have it be ineffective? There seem to be two opposing views here, almost polar opposites when it comes to getting back to normal. Uh, one is, as you say, be, some suggest we're overly cautious, you know, masks, gloves, uh, where they may not be necessary, the social distancing, which I think still is necessary. And the other is just like, just open it up because uh, it's, you're going to get exposed to this at some point. Uh, but that that end of it seems to be based on, well, the a phrase that you and I have talked about in the past, the, the herd immunity. Uh, and I'm hearing now from some experts over the weekend, and again, you can get 10 experts, you know, get five on one opinion and five on the other. But they seem to be suggesting that there's no guarantee that that, that herd immunity is, is, a, is a, a, a follow-up to this. It's not necessarily going to roll into that. In other words, people may get this, this virus more than once, so they may not become immune to it. Absolutely. So we just don't know at this point. And um, while there's a lot of research going on in, in terms of studying what the human immune response to this virus is and, you know, whether there will ever be any kind of effective or long-lasting immunity to it, um, it's certainly possible that we we might be looking at a scenario where we can't achieve herd immunity uh, for for this kind of a virus. Which is going to blow that whole theory right out of the water, I suppose, because that seems to be the, the premise that this is based on, is that, yeah, a lot more people are going to get sick, which may be the spike that we're talking about uh, in the fall or the, or the winter. Uh, but at the same time, it's going to develop this immunity. But again, there's no there's no guarantees when you're dealing with these things, I would think. That's right. And we, what we do know about uh, immunity is that, you know, even with a vaccine, people don't have the exact same immune response. And so if someone is um, has a you know, poor nutritional status or, you know, just generally their health status is a little bit weaker. Um, they don't mount the same kind of uh, immune response to a vaccine that a person who's healthier does. And so, um, you know, there there are always going to be people who are less protected by a vaccine, even if it is effective than, than others. And so we need to think about protecting the people who would fall into that category, and they tend to be uh, people with low socioeconomic status um, because they don't have access to nutritious food, and you know they're working poor jobs, they don't get enough sleep, those kinds of things. So, there are some underlying health inequities that we need to be looking at too, in terms of how we're going to protect people going forward. 
And that's one of the questions we probably have to have a serious discussion about is what have we learned from this going forward? And one of the things that, that I wanted you to comment on, and, and, and certainly the kind of an incongruity of the questions I'm asking, because as I'm listening to all these other experts after you and I talk, I've I got to ask Professor Thompson that next time I get her on the program. One of them is that uh, all of these, these coronaviruses, and there's a list of them, obviously, SARS, uh, the, the bird flu, I mean, we can go through a number of things like that, seem to initiate... Uh, in the animal kingdom, and they and they are transported into humans. Is that, is that a statement, a general statement that we could kind of hang our hat on? Yeah. So a lot of these have a what we would call a zoonotic basis. So okay. the um, influenza is uh, that we call them reservoir species. So they're like a lot of birds will have um, influenza virus, and it doesn't necessarily affect them, but they are the reason that they we see the seasonality because it, it's tied to migration mm-hmm. of, of some of these species. But uh, anytime we have people coming into close contact with um, animals, we're going to run the risk of the transmission of some of these viruses. So there's the the origin of them. And, and you know, again, we can talk about, you know, these, these wet farms, as they call them in China and other places. But, I mean, there's some situations very similar to that in the United States and Canada that we should be probably talking about. I don't know if we're going to have the, the courage to do that sort of thing, but that should be part of the discussion, I would think. So as we move forward on this, and, and if, in fact, there is going to be a concern about uh, about a flu, which happens every year seasonally with us, and, and of course, the possibility of COVID-19, I would think that should probably engender a discussion about, uh, as you say, how we're going to come out of this and how we're going to release or, 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 or you know, lift some of the, the things that have been put in place here. And the one that comes to mind right off the bat, of course, is physical distancing, which uh, most people, I think, are starting to adhere to and have for some time now. And it seems to be working. If you look at the numbers here in Canada, uh, they're not quite as severe as we had hoped. They, they thought they were going to be in situations like this. Uh, is is it a given that we're going to have to say, look at whatever you're going to do, whatever stores you're going to open, whatever things we're going to do here to try to get back to the way things used to be, that, that social distancing or physical distancing is still going to have to be part of our lives for some time to come? Well, I think until we, you know, have a pharmaceutical sort of therapeutic intervention or a vaccine, this is really the main way that we can keep each other healthy. And so until we we can get... Um, some other solutions to this problem. This is really the the main tool that we have in our toolkit for doing that. So that that, that physical distancing, uh, self isolation, I guess, for people that may be more prone to these sorts of things, and those are the ones we've talked about that may have some some uh, physical reasons why you know they they may be more prone to these sorts of things. Uh, the other element of those, of course, is that we're looking at uh, is is the way that we gather as as a society. I mean, we're we we like to hang out with each other, and we want to get back to that. But uh, I, I I'm just envisioning right now, uh, you know, everybody going into the grocery store like they usually do on a Saturday or Sunday and but but I think we're going to see like I say face masks and, and, and probably rubber gloves on an awful lot of people for some time to come this is uh this is scared a lot of people and, and maybe scared them into a sense of reality that we have to be more cautious about our public health absolutely and you know I think we can um also inject some perspective here I mean this is a worldwide pandemic and and uh you know certainly it's it's unprecedented, but there are lots of parts of the world where there are infectious diseases circulating all the time. And, you know, it's it's just interesting to see that this is the one that we have decided to go all out on and, and you know, really curtail. But 
it's it's really because of air travel and uh, you know things that are associated with a fairly privileged level of society. So I think we can you know take from this that yes, this is a terrible situation, and but you know there are other countries in the world that are dealing with endemic tuberculosis uh, and other you know HIV, and you know we we can kind of think about how are we going to live with these diseases circulating in communities because it's entirely possible that for quite an extended period of time that we are not going to have those pharmaceutical interventions to deal with this. And so, um, you know, it's just sort of, you could say that it's the point in time where people with a certain socioeconomic status and um, geography are actually waking up to the reality that lots of people are already living with globally. And, and again, to go back to my point from a couple of minutes ago, I think there has to be a discussion, or at least part of that discussion needs to be about uh, where these things actually uh, are, are emanating from and, and, you know, if there's something we can do about that. I mean, the, the short-term solution, as they say, will stop, you know, just ban those markets in China. But food production, what we eat, how we process food, there's a number of different things that should be part of that discussion, I would think, Professor. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we did see uh, a large number of, of poultry uh Farmers having to kill all their animals yeah. um, in in when there's a, a bird flu uh, situation. So these are really important questions about how we live with other species and how we live with each other. Always great to get your perspective on this stuff as we roll forward here. There's always the political angle, and and you know we we want to get some feedback about exactly how, how these political decisions are going to impact us from a public health standpoint. And it's, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program to do that. Thanks so much, Professor. My pleasure. We'll talk again soon. Professor Allison Thompson from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.